This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Thursday, July 29th, 2010, and this is episode 35. I am Paul Fox, and joining me as always is the Golden Rock himself, Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello, everybody. How's it going, Kevin? Um, pretty good, Paul. How about you? Staying right. dry? Staying dry, staying dry. We've had uh, two weeks of some pretty intense rain. Uh, we got we missed uh, missed the tropical storm last week, but then we had uh, the next day we had a black rain signal, and we had yes. another one earlier this week. And the place that I'm living at, where I'm recording from, just got uh, deluged uh, about an hour ago, and I was afraid we weren't going to be able to record because... Um, it's pretty pretty intense lightning storm, and I always lose power when we have mm. lightning storms here. So I was afraid oh, we may have to cancel, but it seemed to move through fairly quickly, and I got my power restored, and we're good to go. So yeah, that's the kind of weather we deal with when we're out in the dangerous land of Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, for all those who are out waiting in line uh, at the various. Uh, phone hotspots to pick up your iPhone 4, uh, try and stay dry. All right, let's talk about some news for this week uh, for East Screen News. Our first bit of news is talking about the film Aftershock, which is actually our East Screen pick for this week. Um, and this bit of news coming from FilmBiz Asia is talking about the play that the film got for in IMAX and that the uh, it is uh, racked up uh, some pretty exceptional numbers with regard to the the box office um, in, on the IMAX screens and the version that it played at so Kevin what do you think about this is uh, IMAX gonna be the coming thing for Chinese cinema um, the thing is this was very much kind of a hype deal um we're gonna talk about this a little more later when we actually talk about the film but um i and i'm sure many people don't think that aftershock ended up being a suitable film to to start off um imax in china because um it used it used the idea of imax to sell the film to the audience early on but um turns out that most of the film really didn't need the imax i mean especially since the film wasn't shot on IMAX cameras or uh, a, a, a certain film stock that would make the big screen make sense. Um, it's ultimately just kind of a regular family drama. And um, in a way, and I think, I'm not sure how much um, IMAX uh, screens charge people in China, but um, I'm, I think that some moviegoers in China who paid extra to watch this IMAX version may feel, um, well, scammed. Yeah. And well, Apparently, they're, I guess they're running it, they were running it on uh, 12 screens uh, in China, and that it took in, just on the IMAX screens, they ran, took in um, 640,000, uh, which I guess is a pretty good number uh, for IMAX films. Um, I think it, it works on a business sense. Um, they now know that in China, now they know that it's going to sell a movie very well. It's going to attract very big business to IMAX theaters. But on a consumer point of view, I'm afraid that it will, from now on, it will all be just hype. Um, I don't think, um, I mean, China's far, far away from actually making a film that's really, really going to look great on an IMAX screen. Mm. I think to a certain extent, to a certain extent, um, Aftershock made sense on paper, but um, maybe the, the people at IMAX didn't expect, even they didn't expect the film to turn out this way. Mm. But um, no, on paper, Aftershock was the right choice. It just ended up, that's not how, how it turned out. Yeah, and I think you do make a good point in that you do have this idea that it's more expensive to make, <clears throat> excuse me, to make the IMAX film. And at the same time, the tickets are, you know, typically 50% to maybe sometimes double in price. Um, so you have, you're sort of limiting the audience space who can actually come in to these theaters. So, and if you're only going to have 12 venues in all of China, um, that's not that's not really an appealing factor for a lot of filmmakers, I would think, to want to go out and have to petition producers for more money 
um, or petition, you know, the, the the central government to for more financing to help fulfill your visual experiment. But here's the thing: I think having the IMAX name on AfterShock also helped sales on the regular screens because they think that oh, it's a film that's going to be on IMAX. It must be visually appealing. So even if I'm not watching on IMAX. I'm gonna get a treat from watching on a big screen. So in a way, even if you're not watching IMAX screens, having the IMAX logo, buying that, paying money to get that logo, paying money to get it on the IMAX screens, I think for the producers and for the studios, I think it's worth it. Mm. All right, our next bit of news uh, coming out of Busan uh, was just a quick listing of some of the Asian Cinema Fund winners. Uh, this is a bit of news also coming from Film is Asia. And the reason why I kind of flagged this is as I was looking down uh, the list of winners, I noticed that nearly quite, you know, quite a few Southeast Asian countries were represented here. Um, you have quite a, you know, some from Indonesia, um, Uzbekistan, quite a few from South Korea, some from Thailand, Malaysia, India, one from China, uh, none from Hong Kong. Um, and you have winners in the script development category, post-production, and uh, Asian Network of Documentary. Um, so, I don't know, what do, what do you think this says? Is, is, is this representative of the fact that, you know, Hong Kong cinema is kind of dying off, that there aren't people sort of up and coming who are vying for these, these kinds of funds? Or is it simply a fact that maybe there, there were people there who... We're representing Hong Kong. They just weren't good enough to win. Um, I I certainly think the last um the last one had a bit to do with it is that there might have been Hong Kong contenders, but I think what's happened is that um you see a lot of these countries: Indonesia, Malaysia, Bangladesh, uh, Uzbekistan. Um, I think these are countries where perhaps the uh, infrastructure at home um isn't enough to support um their these young filmmakers type of filmmaking and that's why these funds are very good um, for these smaller or less uh, developed country in terms of their film industry um, but also what I think happened is that Hong Kong filmmakers have sort of pulled back their sights I think that too many of them are sort of looking just simply at China um, you do kind of have two very extreme ends here in Hong Kong you got the most commercial filmmakers who are looking to make money, who are looking to get into an industry in China because that's where all the money is. And on the other end, you got these um, avant-garde uh, kind of art, you know, do whatever they want, Hong Kong filmmakers who just don't have to mature in the style to make something that gets beyond kind of self-indulgence. So the, the art scene here is kind of um, really extreme here. And I think um, that's just kind of what happened. Um, Hong Kong, I had to say it, but perhaps it was a case of Hong Kong filmmakers either not having the ambition or just simply not good enough anymore. Right, it's time to talk about our East Screen pick for this week, and that is the big blockbuster summer event film um, known as Aftershock. So I haven't seen this film, Kevin, so once again, I leave it in your very capable hands to lead us through. All righty then. Um, so Aftershock is the latest film by director Feng Xiaogang, um, who is uh, perhaps the most successful commercial filmmaker to date in China. He's made big hits like um, World of Our Thieves, uh, Cell Phone, um, If You're the One, um, The Assembly. Um, I believe Aftershock is his fifth film in a row to gross more than 100 million RMB. So uh, obviously he's a, he's, you, can, you can even compare him to perhaps the Steven Spielberg of China in terms of uh, uh, making money. Anyway, Aftershock is easily, I guess, his biggest film to date. 
um, as we mentioned earlier in East Screen News, um, Aftershock is also the first film to become first uh, foreign language from non-English film to be converted into the IMAX format. Um, Feng Xiaogang is a very smart filmmaker. Uh, he's he knows how to sell a movie, and he knew that using IMAX, uh, calling your film Tangshan Earthquake, um, which is the Chinese title of the film, um, and that would that would is essentially suggest that it's a huge spectacle disaster film. Um, but you might be disappointed if you hold that kind of expectations into the theater. Because uh, Aftershock, the English title Aftershock is actually a much more suitable title because it is literally about after the shock. Um, the film is actually a family drama uh, that talks about the decades after the earthquake. It follows a family, uh, the Fang family. Um, they're split up um, at the Tangshan earthquake. Um, the patriarch of the family dies. Uh, and in the aftermath of the earthquake, because um, the two children are trapped under concrete slab, and the mother um, is forced to make a choice to save only one children, uh, one of the childrens. So um, the mother saves one, uh, the boy and leaves her daughter there. But uh, what they didn't know is that her daughter actually survived the earthquake. Uh, and she's adopted. So by by a by a belief of family in the People's Liberation Army. So the rest of the film, uh, the middle ninety minutes essentially follows uh, two parallel plot line of how these children grew up uh, over the decades after the earthquake. Um, but the problem with this is is that, uh, and I'm sure Feng Xiaogang was probably forced to do so. Uh, maybe even it goes all the way back to the novel that it's based on. And the problem is that it, it kind of presents a very sanitized version of history. Um, the Tangshan earthquake is is very controversial because um, I believe it, the failings of the government at the time uh, led to the end of the Cultural Revolution and also um, the death of Mao happened right uh, very soon after that. And um, what the film chooses to show instead is the very personal drama um, very personal tragedy that happens to these people. But at the same time, Feng decides to kind of, as he depicts these children going up over the years, he, he, he puts in a lot of these scenes, sanitized scenes from history. For example, he shows um, people, uh, particularly the, the People's Liberation Army, um, they, them mourning over uh, Mao's death. Um, they, they show certain um, social changes in generations following including uh, 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 the, the youngsters leaving their, 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 their family going into the big cities and uh, that's something that's still happening today uh, and things like that and the film kind of it kind of just drops the opportunity to really talk about lessons to be learned here um, um, what how the how the people dealt with the earthquake um, after right after the earthquake, um, it's not really a disaster movie per se. It's really, um, in a way, tries to be uh, a story about Chinese people um, and the the the, the social changes uh, over the decades. But the problem is that even in, in two hours, um, it's impossible to fit all that stuff there. And then considering the fact that these characters don't really have much of a go in the middle, because the way they, they set up the story in the beginning, the way they split the family apart, you know that it's leading somewhere, um, leading to a place where that will be amended. And and considering the movie runs two hours and 20 minutes, you, you're sitting there for 90 minutes in the middle, and you're watching episodes from these people's lives. And there's no real motivation because these characters are not driven by motive. They're not driven by anything. They just They're just living, and they're just... The time is going by, and it's just kind of too episodic to 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 keep the movie going. Um, it feels essentially like a very polished television drama with better dialogue. Um, but of course, um, people who 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 don't who are not thinking about what the film could have done, or people who just sort of get who can get involved in the characters, who can accept what Fung is doing here, I'm sure that. 
there are plenty of chances for them to to cry. I mean, that's one of the big selling points of the film is that it's it's a very touching film. It's a it's very much a tearjerker. Um, I believe what I wrote in my Twitter is that more tears fall in this movie than bricks. Um, people cry a lot, uh, both on the screen and the people around me. When I when I went to a theater to watch the film, they were passing out tissues. That's one of the big selling points of the film. But um, I did not cry because um, for me, the, 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 the structure is too dry. Um, these characters aren't all that interesting. The, 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 the ending is pretty much foreshadowed from the moment um, the earthquake happens. Um, it is not the Tangshang earthquake movie that should have been made. Um, this is um, obviously a big commercial film. I'm sure it would touch some people. But I think for people who who were I'm not sure about expectations because anyone who expects a big disaster movie is going to be disappointed for sure. But um, expectation shouldn't be something to hold against the movie. What I have against the movie is what it didn't do. Um, it, I think it exploited the victims of the earthquake, the Tangshan earthquake. It also exploits another major Chinese disaster in order to 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 make people cry i think it's a great disservice to the dead by not talking about the failings that caused this great disaster no one really learns anything from the earthquake um it simply causes things but um i think it's um very much a missed opportunity um but you can't really um say that feng xiaogang is not uh, a, a smart commercial filmmaker. He's very smart. He first sells the IMAX when the film started production. He sells the IMAX. He sells the title. But just before the film came out, after the film was completed, um, he he completely shifted the the selling point of the film. He tells people that oh, there are not enough IMAX prints. Well, watch the regular print because you don't really need the IMAX. The film is about uh, human tragedy. Uh, it's about touching people. And it worked. Uh, the film made 160 million RMB over the weekend. It broke records. And um, there, are, there's, there's a group of people who thinks that, who thinks as I do, who thinks that Feng Xiaogang essentially exploited these people. And there's a large group of people who are really touched by this film. I don't know if I would say that the other group is wrong, but the fact that Feng Xiaogang can, 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 can make this much money from a movie this dry, from a movie that, that defies defies expectation of visual spectacles the, the way that he's able to do it I think you know good for him he's very smart um, and he deserves the money he makes but I don't think he's a very respectful filmmaker so now the, this film takes place over two decades right about about three decades three I think decades. from from the from the from the earthquake in 1976 to 2008 okay so it it does it does it touch on the recent earthquake at all that's exactly the problem. It exploits it. It uses it. It uses it to, in a way that it 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 simply, um, causes you. It just jerks more tears. Um, it doesn't. Again, it doesn't um, make any lessons out of these the the, the second disaster. Um, of course, for political reasons, for censorship reasons, I'm sure they weren't able to. But you know, if you're not going to be able to make an accurate depiction of events that cause these deaths and actually deal with it, you know, face to face, then why make it? Yeah. And you, you mentioned that what's being presented here is a sanitized version of history. Um, mm -hmm. So it's picking up in 76. I imagine they're not talking about the much of the cultural revolution because it had pretty much ended by that point. Um, Mao, you know, passes away. And then in 78, you've got the, the, the change of, of power in the central government. And you get the open door policy, and things start to open up. But did they, did they touch on some of the other more controversial issues, like because you know, as Tiananmen mentioned at all, um, or are there other, or is it simply trying to present, um, you know, a sort of a more rosier picture of, you know, oh, China's progressing? Oh, definitely the the latter. Um, the the Mao, the more like a, 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 a lot of people attack this film in China because of the. Um, the product placements. Um, there are some very out of place product placements in the film, uh, but I think those weren't the big deal. I think the biggest product placement in the film is for the People's Liberation Army. Um, they're you know heroic. 
they they rescue people. Even in 1976, when the Tangshan earthquake was known for having a failed relief effort, um, and and a total lack of uh, alert alertness uh, in Tangshan, and um, and yeah, I, I think it definitely painted a rosier, relatively rosier picture than what really happened. Um, I I don't want to make this sound like I wanted to see more destruction and death, but I think that you make a film about this disaster, considering that it's never been covered in cinema the last 30 years, uh, at least uh, not to my knowledge, I think that Feng Xiaogang had a responsibility to, to, to accurately depict what happened. Uh, whether, whether it was the heroics of the People's Liberation Army, if it is true, or whether it is what the government didn't do that caused that further the tragedy. Um, but you know, Feng Xiaogan again is a commercial filmmaker and he has to keep working in China. Um, so, you know, in a way you can't blame him, but you know, you can't help but blame him for not doing it. Yeah. So basically from an outside perspective, um, you're not going to get much in terms of historical accuracy, accuracy. Um, you're not going to get much in terms of maybe social challenge or social, social commentary. Um, you're basically going to get a sort of a straightforward family drama. Is that is that what I is that the sense that I'm am I getting the correct sense from your uh, interpre interpretation? I think it's very much a film for the domestic Chinese audience in that these um, social changes, social trends, are more suggested, implied. Um, I think people who see it, who know about the social changes that happened in the last couple of decades. They would be able to pick up on what it's depicting, but I think for people who don't understand China, who don't know about China, they're going to find the film uh, more dry. I think drier than 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 what the domestic uh, audience see. Hmm. Um, there is uh, again the film after. I mean, the title "Aftershock" is very accurate in terms of what it's depicting. It's about essentially what this disaster, how this disaster affected the survivors even decades later. Um, and, you know, I think that approach is fine, but um, I think what Feng Shaogun tried to do was have his kick and eat it too by not only showing how it affected, how the disaster affected the people personally, but he also tried to integrate too much of this national change, of this, this, this whole um, change in history. I think he did, he tried to do too much and, it, it, like I say, it worked for a domestic audience because they know all of this and they would be fine with seeing all the way it's presented. But I think for uh, a foreign audience who don't know much about China, I think there's little, little reward in, in watching this film. Does it, I mean, does it, does it ever question itself or question its own cultural choices? I mean, you mentioned, for example, that the onset of the story, and, and we're pretty much shown this in the trailer, if you've seen the trailer, is that the little girl is left by the mother. Is that correct? It's the mother, right? Right. Uh, right. And she, she chooses the son. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, people who study China and who study Chinese issues understand that there is a definite male bias when it comes to male children, and it's led to all kinds of social problems. The girl then goes on to grow up, and she has a life, and as you mentioned, there's two sort of parallel lives going on here. Is that you know, does she ever confront the mother about that? Is that an issue that's ever brought to the front or is it just simply, well, this is what happened and life goes on? Um, I think that's what I meant. I think that's what I meant. Um, that's what I meant when I said from the moment the mother makes a choice, it was foreshadowing that the ending of the film is going to be a reunion. Um, that is the big emotional climax of the film and that's what Feng Xiaogan spends 90 minutes setting up. Um, but is it, is it, is it, is it a reunion in the fact that it's like, oh, we're all back together after so long and it's happy? Or is it a re reunion in the fact that, how come you left me? I'm a girl and, and that's the reason you left me. You choose the boy, son over the girl. You know, you know what I, you see what I'm saying? Yes, that there's yes. a deeper um, social issue there that, that seems like it's far more interesting. But from the sense that I get is that it's simply a family drama and it's a tearjerker and it's building this, you know, reunion ending. Yeah, there, the the character definitely questions why the mother made that choice, but it is never 
answered it, it, it the way it presented it is that it was a it was a spur it was kind of the moment where she the mother had to make the choice quickly so it's not and, a, it's not something never, it's not a real social issue that they're investigating then no they never investigate the whole boy girl even though in a way it is somewhat implied uh right afterwards um the the family is thanked that it showed the the other family members thankful that the boy's alive um the but no the the whole boy girl issue is never really truly explored even though it does question why the mother made the choice but in the end it never really provided a concrete answer why the this character made the choice and i'm not sure why um you know perhaps they think that it's not important to know why the the more important thing is to oh they reunite and it's really really touching and and the mother is the the whole the the the, the, the what drives the mother through the three decades the 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 overarching feeling is that she carried the guilt with her for for the three decades and that's what really drives um how the character behaves but again the the film then her never addresses why she made the choice and um and like you said, I think I think you bring up a good point that the social social um reason why that choice was made was never never explored uh, no one ever questioned it and yeah I think it is another another um missed opportunity for the film You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast visit concast.com for more All right, it's time to talk about some West Screen news for this week. Um, up first, just a quick note that uh, Comic-Con recently ended. And uh, as usual, every year Comic-Con is one of the larger events that now takes place that not only celebrates comic books, but in general geeky and nerdy culture, including film culture. And uh, there are many commercial enterprises and production houses that now use this as a venue to go out and promote their films and promote their products. This has caused, you know, many people, myself included, to question the nature of the beast that has, you know, that Comic-Con has merged into. Uh, a lot of comic book fans have said that this is not the Comic-Con of old that they remember, which was simply a celebration of comic books and a chance for people to go and buy comic books and meet the creators of comic books. It's become so much more than that now, and some people feel that it's grown far too big. Um, but it is certainly an exciting time because there's a lot of news and there's a lot of um, new new trailers that are sneaked out and released and everybody's always very feverishly looking over the internet to see what's the latest little tidbit that's been snuck out of Comic-Con. Um, just recently, right before we started the show, for example, there was a Thor trailer, um, five about a five-minute trailer that was uh, put up on the web and the website actually said, Watch this before it's taken down. And I got a chance to see it, and I was quite surprised. I was I was um, fairly impressed with what I saw. I'm actually kind of excited to see the film now. I wasn't sure they were going to be able to represent it in a way that I th thought would fit very well with uh, what's already been presented in Iron Man, but looks like it might work. Um, Kevin, what's your, what's your take on the whole Comic-Con madness? Here's the thing. I, I, I wouldn't know that there are comics at Comic-Con um, from this year. Uh, it, it may be because I follow all the um, the film media's coverage of it, and I just, you know, everything I hear about or I read about, it just seems to be about films. Okay, maybe they may be films about comics, you know, like, okay, Thor, and maybe um, um, maybe the Scott Pilgrim. Um, they, that's the most, I think that's the most uh, talked about uh, panel uh, and film, because uh, I think Scott Pilgrim vs. The World premiered there. Um it just seems like the movie industry has taken over the yeah, comic. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that they actually had like a full size light cycle on the floor from from Tron and um, you know countless booths of not you know video games and and new electronic gadgets and stuff and um, I think then like the, they were saying um, on one website the new DC online massive multiplayer game was like in this big section where you you could go and you can play it so it's all kind of merged into this massive thing yeah it just seems like instead of comic con they should just rename it the fanboy con 
<laughs> and and then you know everything can go everything that that's nerdy and and I know I'm not I don't mean it in a negative connotation because I am a nerd as well. Um, that everything nerdy and everything that has to do with you know that loosely has to do with comic or genre films can go there. Yeah, uh, that's what it seems like already. And they must just rename it. And you know I'm not I'm not a comic fan, but. And as a, even as a film buff, I'm kind of sorry to see the film industry has taken over and and made it made it a promotional tool for themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been to a few conventions, and I think we've covered this before on previous episodes. Um, you know, I went to a number of conventions back in the day, and they were typically very specific. You know, you'd go to a Star Trek convention, you'd meet a couple of the actors from a Star Trek series or the Star Trek films, and there'd be dealers there selling Star Trek specific stuff. Of all different kinds and they were typically small you'd get a you know a couple hundred people maybe a thousand people going um to some of these smaller conventions but they were you know they were nice single day events something that you could do in a single day and you could get you wouldn't have any trouble getting in um to, to see everybody speak and there wouldn't be scheduling conflicts now it's like as i was reading from from some people's experiences that if you want to go see you know, like you were mentioning, the Scott Pilgrim panel, you actually might have to go and sit in the panel before, which you may have no interest in. It might be a Hello Kitty panel. Um, but you simply sit in that panel because you want the seat and you want to be in the room because they don't come and they don't clear the room for the next panel, apparently. So if, you know, you, you could be waiting outside in line for that panel, but if enough people are staying in from the panel before, there won't be any seating and you won't get in. Yeah, I mean, I heard the seating issue even cost a, a stabbing, right? Have you heard yeah, of I heard something like some guy got stabbed in the face or something because of a his seat. friend. Yeah, that's yeah his just, friend stabbed him with a pen. You know, I've, I've heard about nerd rage before, but I guess that's nerd rage in action. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, people take their fandom seriously. Uh, just I, look I, at cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I like. I think I would prefer something like. Um, the conventions that you talked about, um, where it's kind of a smaller, intimate setting. I'm sure, you know, the joke in popular culture is that when you know uh, has been sci-fi stars, when they when they're really has been, they go to small conventions like these. But um, no, I I think I would like these kind of nice, intimate settings where you know you got the real fans showing up and where real fans can gather and they can talk about uh um the whatever is the convention is for and i think it's a nice environment that you know that comic con doesn't really have anymore it seems like yeah just i mean I, I, i'm i'm always very torn when these com- conventions come around i think i was twittering um a couple weeks ago when it, it was getting close and saying something about you know it's great living in hong kong the only downside is that we don't have you know really cool conventions like comic con but we've got great dim sum you know, but you know, at the same time, when I look at all the all the the madness that goes on in these things now, because they're so big, and because you know, there's there's so much commercial presence, and there's so much star power there now that you've got people from all different areas kind of going, just because they want to be close to the stars. Um, it's just I, I I don't think I'd ever really go. I don't think I'd want to. Um, be stuck in those long lines and be, you know, in that pressed crowd going from, you know, table to table and, and exhibit to exhibit. I'm excited to see some of the things get re- that get released, but, you know, thanks to the power of the internet, I don't have to go anywhere. Well, Paul, if you really want a huge crowded convention, you try to go to the book fair. Even if you don't see uh, Chrissy or one of the other models, uh, at least you feel the the crowd. I feel that every day when I get off work. That's okay. <laughs> the, the the mass press at the like six o'clock uh you know central or admiralty MDR station is enough for me, especially if it's a holiday. Oh my goodness. All right, our next bit of news uh talking about a film we talked about last week and that is Toy Story Three. Uh the film has gone on to set a new record. Uh this news also coming from Film Biz Asia. <clears throat> and it has become the top-grossing uh, animated film of uh, all time uh, for Hong Kong, that is. And it's likely to probably become the top-grossing animated film for all time worldwide once the global numbers start to, to um, trickle in. Um, <clears throat> but it is it is surpassed Toy Story 2, which I guess was the previous 
box office holder. Um, falling into third place is The Incredibles. Fourth place is Up. Fifth place, Ice Age 3. Sixth place, Finding Nemo. Uh, followed by Kung Fu Panda, Monsters, Inc. Um, surprisingly, Shrek Forever After. And the one non-U.S. Um, and non-sort of 3D animated film still in the mix is Miyazaki's Spirited Away. So it's a pretty interesting list. Um, I Still, I look at lists like these and I go, you know, okay, you're talking about uh, Toy Story 2, um, which, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it had a three-month or a two-month run back in 2000, and, but the ticket prices were a lot less then. So, of course, Toy Story 3, um, you've got expanded ticket prices now, and you've got 3D ticket prices on top of that, um, which is almost, you know, in some cases, double of what the ticket prices in 2000 would have been. Um, so... Yeah, what do you what do you think about this, Kev? Yeah, no, I, I mentioned on my Twitter today because um, Disney and IVL, uh, the, the distributor here, they shelved this 3D version down our throats and they charged Hong Kong people double, essentially double the the regular ticket price. Um, and again, inflation, inflation is a big deal here in Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, you're right. I think th these numbers didn't account for inflation. So while it's really impressive that Toy Story has made sixty million dollars. I think the real gauge should be how many tickets each of these movies sold. Um, South Korea does this. They, they, they gauge the uh, success of a movie by the tickets that it sold. Um, I think it's a perfectly fair way of gauging a film's success. And I think that's something that more places should use to, to truly gauge a film's success. Because, you know, um, a lot of these reports, they just talk about numbers, but, it, but they don't take into account the why, how these numbers uh, built up. Well, and speaking about setting records, our final bit of news for West Screen this week is about another record-breaking franchise, and that is the Saw franchise. Um, I'm sure that many of you listening out there have probably seen at least one of the Saw films. If you were going to watch one, I would recommend the first one. I don't think I could recommend many more beyond that. Uh, but I think I've seen up to number five, and I think there have been six released to date, and there's a seventh one, which is coming out um, this Halloween, uh, and it's going to be in 3D, according to the article here, coming from uh, MSN Movies. Um, so the Saw film, the Saw horror film franchise has gone on to be the most successful horror film um, series to date, and... Um, the, the producer, Mark Burr, one of the producers, uh, Mark Burr, says he's still in shock. Uh, that, you know, the fact that he says the fact that we beat out Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and the Texas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a testament to our cast, crew, and our partners at Lionsgate. Um, so, yeah, Kevin, uh, best horror film series ever, or again, another case of uh, inflation? Um, inflation, um, also just, you know, I think overkill, uh, pardon the pun, pardon the pun, uh, overkill. Um, there's, they make one of these every year. Um, yeah, and it's know. every year at Halloween. Yes. Every which year is, at Halloween. is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's good from a marketing perspective to have a horror film that people, you know, at Halloween, you know, it's kind of like watching a Christmas film during Christmas time. If there's nothing else out to watch in that genre people are going to go and see that film probably um also the, the genre is sort of sh i mean the whole franchise sort of shown that it's its appeal is is uh, dwindling i think the last film um went way down box office compared to the because the last i think the, the last five films they there's a there's a rising trend in the box office and then the sixth film it fell off big time so um, I think I don't think the Saw the Saw franchise is going to last, perhaps beyond two more years or three more years. Um, I mean, all all great things have to end, um, and uh, you know, good for them. Good, good that they made enough money, um, even though it's torture porn. And um, I guess yeah, I never saw any of the Saw films. So um, really? any, any filmmaker, you haven't no, even seen was, the first one. No, I, I I'm not a big horror fan. I'm not big. You gotta watch the first one. I mean, the first one is is not really. Uh, I I expected it to be a lot worse. I I expected it to be like a hostel or something, but it's actually not that really bad. It's a lot more 
in your head and and a lot more psychological than any than any of the other ones the other ones just get ridiculous because you know they kind of mm -hmm. go over the top with it but if you ever get a chance you know i definitely recommend that one um, it's got Danny Glover gives a really good performance in it. Yeah. I, I mean, as as um, Saw is the one that kind of started off the, the the torture porn, but you know, as it is with all these trends, the beginning is always the best. So uh, I'm not surprised that you would say that you would think that that um, Saw one is part of the best one, and, I, and I'm not surprised because um, it usually if it's if it's going to start off a trend, I'm pretty sure I'm I'm sure it would be a, a good film, but um. I, I'll get a chance one day to see it, but um, maybe just the first film, Paul. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say you'd have to go anywhere beyond that. All right, it's time to move on to our West Screen film for this week, and that is the new action-adventure film, Salt. So this is the story of a CIA agent, an operative named Evelyn Salt, um, who works for the government agency, and she is actually days from switching her, her fieldwork job to becoming sort of a desk jockey. Um, and it's during, it's during this time that, uh, a Russian agent comes in and he wants to give, uh, some information and he does so freely. And in doing so, he accuses, uh, Salty of basically being a Russian spy, uh, undercover spy. And suddenly all her partners, um, her, her partner played by Liev Schreiber, um, and other people in the department, uh, start looking at her in a very uh, sort of an accusational manner, and she suddenly starts uh, worrying about her husband. She feels that if she's been uh, targeted, if she's been compromised, if she's being sold out um, <clears throat> or blackmailed or whatever the reason is that she's being accused, that whoever's doing it is going to go after her, her family, her husband. So she's trying to get in touch with her husband and basically a big chase ensues um, as she tries to get away from her colleagues and her partners um, it basically becomes one chase scene after another during the course of all these events she finds out that there's this plot to kill the russian president who is going to be visiting the united states to attend the funeral of the vice president who's recently passed away and so in uncovering this plot, she decides that she has to take it upon herself to stop it. And lots of chaos and lots of action and more plot turns and twists ensue from there. Um, this is very much an Angelina Jolie vehicle. And if you're going to watch this film, you have to be somebody who really likes her and likes her presence. Um, and I think she carries the film very well. Um, it's got fantastic action. I think it's got really great pacing. Sometimes I think it's overpaced. And by that, I mean it, it, it becomes a long sequence and series of, of chases for an extended period uh, during the middle of the film, so much so that I felt like I needed a rest. I needed to stop and catch my breath. Um, the plot, however, I think it was a little bit reminiscent of some old James Bond movies. Um, it's, it's very, it's got a very Cold War feel. It's, we're back to this age of, you know, us versus them, uh, in terms of, uh, the U.S. and the Russians as, you know, I don't want to reveal too much, but as the plot starts to unfold, we find out that there are lots of Russian spies, um, planted in the United States. And, you know, there's this big plot that's ensuing that goes far beyond, um, the simple assassination attempt. Um, and in, in many ways, I think that, you know, I'm not really happy if this is the direction that we're headed in, if we're headed sort of back to this Cold War mentality of, of us needing to depict the Russians as the bad guys. 
Um, I think we've talked about this before, how there's been a sort of a trend. Obviously, there's been a trend for, you know, depicting uh, uh, Middle Easterners and people of uh, Muslim faith as the bad guys since 9-11. And then there was, there's sort of a trend kicking off with, um, and even in this film, with Asians, um, North Koreans and the Chinese are starting to take more and more of these sort of uh, nemesis roles in films like this. Um, But here we are back dealing with Russia again. And I found it really interesting because a lot of what's going on here with, you know, spies and Russian spies in the United States is really very reflective of a lot of the events that have been going on in the news. If you've paid attention, there was this huge um, unearthing of domestic spies in the United States. Uh, Agents who were basically living... You know, the, 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 the middle-class family lifestyle, white picket fence, you know, barbecues on the 4th of July kind of thing. And they all got, a, a bunch of them got deported, and there was, a, there was a prisoner exchange. You've got this one who was living a very high life, I guess. I think she was in New York, uh, Anna Chapman, who had a Facebook page and, you know, had model, model-like photos going on. So it, it's really interesting that this film would come out and have some of the themes that it does... And at the same time, we've got these, you know, these real news stories going on. Um, as the film starts to get going and we start to get some more of the backstory on what's really going on, I started to get a little bit confused. Um, there, there's this whole backstory about um, who's really behind everything and who are the people, where, where you know, how, how did they get where they are? How did they become who they are? And I started to get a little bit confused um, with with one of the characters. And I came away with some questions that I, maybe I need to go back and watch the film a second time. Um, but then it you know, just led into another chase scene, and I quickly forgot my confusion you know, up until the end of the film. Um, I think Angelina Jolie carries action films very well. I've felt this, you know, Back as early as Tomb Raider, and you know she handled it wasn't a great film, but she handled action well. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, another great action film. Here, I think, you know, um, playing some uh, somewhat more of a middle-aged woman, still handling the action very well. A lot of times, it's very unbelievable, but this is a character that I could see sort of evolving into, um, you know, a, a sort of a female James Bond, um, and we could see successive sequels if this film does well. Kevin, thoughts on Salt? Um, I didn't really have any problem with the speed of the story because um, I think that it needed to be that fast to kind of sell, um, to get past the plot holes. The film is ridiculous. The plot, I, I mean, well, first of all, I, I'm glad to see that white people are fighting white people again. <laughs> um, instead of, you know, Chinese people fighting white people. Yeah. Um, uh, or, or, or we, white we, people fight. Yeah, brown. we needed Donnie to come in and save the day. <laughs> yeah, Donnie. You know, I, I think all films, including Inception, should end with the hero saving the, the pride of the Chinese people and beating the white man. Uh, <laughs> I'm very glad that Andrew Lee Jolie gets to fight the white man as well here. Um, many white men. Um, that, that is and, until, uh, they, until they cast her in the new Mulan movie, right? <laughs> yeah, until, until she's new Mulan, and she still gets to fight white people. Maybe who knows? Um, maybe there'll be a couple of white people uh, inside the Mongol with the Mongolians. You never know. Um, I think the action was great. Really, I, I don't. If 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 the character didn't really have a generic name like Salt, uh, no one would remember her name because they would just keep see, trying to see seeing that is Angelina Jolie doing these action? Is Angelina Jolie kicking ass? It's not the character that's kicking ass. It's Angelina Jolie. So, so having this this really generic name, I was waiting for for someone in, someone in the film to make fun of that name. Like, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's got to be a one syllable name like Bond or yeah. Shaft. You know, yeah, it's, but, it's, yeah. it's 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 the one syllable notion of it. But you know, yeah, I'm, I was you can make all kinds of fun of this name if they do a sequel. You know, they've got to have a nemesis called Pepper or something. <laughs> you know, it's 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 just rife for poking fun of. Yeah, it would be a great uh, buddy buddy franchise, Salt and Pepper, or even they could get like a uh, 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 like a black actress and name her Peppa. Anyway, uh, oh yeah, okay, sorry. Um, I think I think the action was great. Um, 
uh, the the whole you know the kicking and the, the jumping and the driving and uh, using the a certain object to steer a car that was a great invention um reportedly she did all her own stunts uh but i think the problem with the director philip noise uh what he did is that he he showed a lot of these stunts and wide shots where you can't really see that it's jolie doing it and it almost suggests that a stunt woman did it and it's kind of a disservice um to to her 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 um devotion to the film but uh anyway i think this could be if this turns into a franchise and it does um, have potential to be a franchise. I think it may be her best action role to date. I think this will be the role that defines her if it does become a franchise. I think there's great potential for uh, uh, bigger and grander sequels. Um, also, I have to give credit to the promotional people who did a promotional campaign because um, the twists the twists are quite surprising. The way that the story takes, um, the direction that it takes, because it sets itself up to be one of those. Um, the wrong woman, you know, the the, the accused uh, being set up, being framed, kind of film, but it does go a lot deeper into that. Um, it it does really surprise because um, you see actually you end up actually seeing so little of the film and the promotional stuff that you you are surprised by what happens, even though you know none of it really makes much sense. There are a lot of plot holes in the film, uh, so much that a scriptwriter should really be glad how good. Uh, Philip Noyce and the rest of the team is because um, Philip Noyce is not really known for action films. I think if he did the two Harrison Ford, Tom Clancy films, uh, Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. He also did um, a smaller film, Australian film called Rabbit Proof Fence uh, starring Kenneth Branagh. Um, so he's, he's kind of not really known as this big action director, but he, he really knows how to pace the film um, his editor, he has two editors, uh, the, the action director of the film, uh, they, they really carried this film. They moved it quick. They made it, they, they, they pretty much, I think they had a whole committee to cut down the script from, from probably this really ambitious story down to the 90 minutes that it's at now and just moved it along as quick as possible so that you don't really have any time to, to doubt the film. Um, and I think, that's probably why I don't really mind not missing whatever, um, whatever moves past too quickly because it probably doesn't make sense, and I'm not gonna try and try and be a be a smart butt and and doubt uh, and think about the plot holes. I mean, there's some still some huge plot holes, but um, the film itself, the craftsmanship of the filmmaking is so good that that you enjoy it just for the craftsmanship. You don't watch it really for what you typically might see in a film, you know, like story or, or, or characters or plot or, or emotions. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very good summer film. Definitely watch it in a loud theater and a big screen. Uh, finish your tub of popcorn and just don't think about it. You know, just watch it once and it's fun. All right, uh, it's time to talk about some of the comments we got in the past week. Um, commenter, comment, frequent commentator and friend of the show, uh, David Harris says he's found a fix for the Love and the Puff Blu-ray. So if you've uh, happened to get a Blu-ray for Love and the Puff and you have some trouble accessing the menu, um, he says that there's a little move that you can do uh, with the menu, I, I guess the menu control, uh, that will help you sort of alleviate that. And let me bring up what he says here. He says, uh, yeah, uh, he says, if you're having playback issues with Love and a Puff, uh, this tip comes from Media Asia, and it works. Press left during the Engli Eng English language copyright warning, and the loading restarts and continues to the film's menu. Um, so if you're having trouble with the, uh, with the disc, the Blu-ray disc, um, and sometimes because a lot of these, uh, discs will play differently on different players, um, you know, some, some players can be really touchy with some of the, some of the discs. I don't know if it's the encoding software they use, or sometimes they're not burned in a certain way, um, makes them a bit more sensitive, but he found a fix, uh, so you can give that a try. Uh, for anyone who has an iPhone or I believe an iPad or whatever, um, actually the the thing that made this this so advanced is that 
um, the there's a digital copy of the film hidden in the disc. Um, I am not so sure about how to use it because I don't have an iPhone, and also um, it might not be relevant to a lot of our listeners because the film only the, the digital version only has Chinese subtitles. But um, also, if you're using a PS3 to watch your Blu-ray, I believe uh, the fix is that just just update your firmware, and I think that will probably be that's probably the fix for most Blu-ray players who can't uh, play this. I had no problem on my um, on my Philips player, uh, nor on my the uh, Blu-ray drive. So um, when in doubt, I think just update your firmware, or you could use the fix that uh, David used to to get the menu. All right. Good advice. Thank you, Mr. Harris. I also got a comment from Matt S who says that I should stop pulling a Johnson. <laughs> and by that, I mean, uh, one of the podcasts very inspirational for me that I listen to is done by uh, one of my favorite podcasters, Scott Johnson. One of the things he always does though, is he always um, comes out, comes out and says these things. He says, Oh, I've got this, this new thing that's coming or uh, I've got something I'm working on, but I can't tell you about it. And it, you know, drives me and all his other listeners insane. We People have actually come up with a name from They call it Pulling a Johnson. And one of the things that I sort of set out to do in podcasting was never do that. I'm never, I'm, I, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be him. And here I was doing it very on our very last show. Um, so Matt pointed out, he says, uh, It is understandable that you might not want to spoil the ending to Toy Story 3, but it's also perhaps a bit off-putting to the listener when a potentially interesting discussion topic is raised and then taken offline. And that's exactly what I did last week when we were talking about um, a possible alternative ending to Toy Story 3 and I didn't want to spoil the ending um, because we don't want to spoil films here. Um, and so I do apologize for that to Matt and to any of the other listeners, but I think I've come up with a solution. I think I'm going to start a spoiler segment and mm. so anytime that me and Kevin really want to get into discussing things that would really spoil a film, I think what I'll do is I'll take that section out and I'll stick it at the very end, the very, very end after, um, after our closing theme, after our outtakes and everything. So if then we do talk about stuff that's spoilers, I'll have a big spoiler warning. And if you want to hear that stuff, you're welcome to do so at your own risk. And if you don't, you can simply stop when, you know, the show music ends. Um, so I think that hopefully that will be a good solution and that will prevent me from pulling any more Johnsons. And I won't be annoying listeners like Matt and all the rest of you out there who would like to, you know, hear some of the things that we talk about with stuff that we've already seen. So if you want to find out more information, you're always welcome to visit our website at www.congcast.com. Um, where we post up the show notes. Um, I'm going to start posting up trailers for some of the East screen stuff because most of the stuff that we talk about does have a trailer. And I'm thinking that some of you who are out there listening, possibly in the U.S. or in Europe who aren't in Hong Kong, may be interested in some of the films we're talking about and getting a chance to see some of the trailers may you know, pique your interest a little bit further. Um, as always, you can find our episodes on iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter. Um, you can find my Twitter over on the website. And you can follow Mr. Ma's much more interesting Twitter. Um, what is what is your Twitter again, Kevin? It is the Golden Rock in one word. Remember the duh. And also uh, you can follow what uh, I do at work by following the Yes Asia Twitters. I often we tweet news about uh, releases that I'm interested about, including uh, this week, I believe, I retweeted the release of KJ, which we voted as the best Hong Kong film last year, uh, the Love HK Film Awards. Uh, also, Avatar Taipei and uh, Gallants, of course, is on DVD. So um, follow me and the SHR Twitters to um, be updated on the latest releases. All right. Uh, speaking of Gallants, did you, did you pick that up? Yes, I am holding a DVD I'm, I'm, of it. I'm I... so tempted, you know, because I, I want to watch it now again, and I want to show I want to show it to uh, Gia because I think she'd like it. But it's like I want to get a Blu-ray, so I'm kind of like I don't want to double buy it. What do I do? Do I do I just get the DVD or do I wait for the Blu-ray? For what I've been told, that is the Blu-ray is not something you want to hold your breath really uh, for. Yeah, I think um, I'm fine with the film on. Um, DVD right now because um, the the actual way the film is 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 is, is shot um, in a way kind of rem is reminiscent of the old seventies film and 
you might just kind of see too much of the flaws. I think it might see too much of it when it's in, in high def. Hmm. Um, That's a good point. I kind of like it on yeah, and I kind of like it on DVD. And the, the it comes with a packed DTSES uh, audio track that that sounds very nice. So um, yeah, I, I and it, it's not expensive, so I would go with the DVD. All right. Um, Kevin, you also wanted to mention uh, the Yes Asia Facebook. Yes, yes. In addition to the uh, Yes Asia Twitters, we've also launched the Yes Asia Facebook uh, today. So um, I believe you just search yesasia.com and uh, like us. Essentially, click on that like button next to the yesasia.com. If you see a green profile picture with a big Yes Asia logo, and that's that's us. Uh, we'll be posting. Um, Pictures of the office and really uh, announcing our biggest releases, and uh, you might hear from Kozo. Sweet. All right, so our next show will be next week, uh, episode thirty-six. Uh, we won't have an East Screen film to talk about next week, but I think we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about Inception, which both Kevin and I have already seen, but opens today in Hong Kong, and so I'm very excited to talk about that. And also looking ahead to next month, August, we've got quite a few films on the horizon for West Screen. We've got, uh, among many others, we've got Sorcerer's Apprentice, uh, Despicable Me, a French film, The Extraordinary Adventures of um, Adèle Blanc-Sec. Um, my French is terrible. I apologize. Uh, the Sylvester Stallone blockbuster, The Expendables. And for East Screen, what do we got, Kevin? We've got... Um, the Benny Chen uh, version of Fantastic Four. I'm sorry. Uh, it's called City <laughs> Under Siege. Um, We've got yeah, a I'm new Carol movie, so uh, I'm kind of excited about that, although I doubt that'll be showing with uh, English subtitles, but I may just uh, I may just brave the, the cinema anyway and try and try out my Chinese if they've got a if they've got a Japanese version. I don't like it when they dub them in Cantonese. Uh, we've got a film, Shanghai. Do you know anything about that? It's uh, Chow Yun-Fat, but also got John Cusack. Yes, this is the Weinstein's Asian Fund's only film before uh, they shut the fund down. Um, it premiered in China. Um, it wasn't able to get, I believe, a release in America, so I'm not uh, particularly looking forward to it, but I've heard that it's actually not that bad. Um, so I'm looking, kind of looking forward to see how China is presented when it's supposed to look like Casablanca. Mm. Um, yeah, I also have Gong Li, by the way, uh, and Ken Watanabe. So uh, kind of a major pan-Asian uh, production here. Any chance um, of all of them getting in a hot tub? Oh, I, well, only Gong Li. <laughs> <me. laughs> I don't want to see, I like Charlie Fett, but I don't want to see him in the hot tub. Yeah. Nor John Cusack, I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe he'll be in the Chevy Chase role, you know. <laughs> he'll be the, the hot tub repairman. Yeah. Maybe Crispin <laughs> Gover can show up and lose his arm there, too. Um, uh, there's also, we got, also got the uh, Enhui's uh, lesbian dramedy, uh, All About Love. It's going to premiere at the Summer International Hong Kong International Film Festival in uh, mid-August, but it will also get a release uh, at the end of the month. Uh, also, for over the second half of August, like I said just now, we will also have the Summer International Film Festival. Sadly, the Asian picks are not very strong, but I would suggest if, you're, if you are in Hong Kong at the time, check out www.hkiff.org.hk and uh, see if anything interests you there. Yeah, sounds good. I'm really excited about All About Love, um, in part because it's a return to the big screen of Vivian Chow. You know, also, in part, it's not the Andy Lam movie. Yeah, not it's, it's no Andy and and uh, Charlene in this one, right? I hope not. And, but and, and another no no, no watch top. promos. Yes. All right, so that's our show for this week. As always, uh, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Yeah, Paul, I think I think you just pulled my Johnson. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're a family friendly show here. <clears throat> All right. Uh, <laughs> What's that? I meant I meant my 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 Johnson and Johnson. Ah, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> don't dig the doll any deeper, dude. <laughs> All right. I think that's gonna wrap up our show for this week. Um to wrap up on. Yeah, we better stop now while we're ahead. Oh, I shouldn't have said that either.
All right, so Toy Story. This is this is how I would have had it end. Okay. So the toys make it back. They get in the box. Andy boxes them up. They go up into the attic. They live there for a while. A couple scenes of them having fun with the Christmas toys or whatever. And then it's like, you know, his kids. Ten years later, he comes up, brings them down. He's got, you know, kids or something, and he introduces them to the toys. And then he and his kids start playing with the toys together. Ah. See, that's how that, that that's how I was expecting them to go. I mean, I think the the way they did it with the little girl was was nice and everything, and it was it was like real time, so there was no downtime for the toys. Um, mm-hmm. But I was really expecting them to have it sort of go on a generation, you know, because those were his sort of his core group of toys that he didn't want to get rid of. And so those would be the ones that I could see him passing on to to his kids. No, but having thrown them in the attic is kind of what they dreaded in the beginning as well. You know, being stuck in the attic for yeah, 10 plus see, years after being stuck in the toy box for, for, you know, five, six years already. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. I mean, after being at Sunnyside, the attic would have been cool. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like this. They got a TV up there. They'd all be together. So, yeah. No, the part where where he's he's introducing, like you were saying, how he he knows each of the toys and how he remembers each of the toys and how he played with them. That that really that got to me. And of course, that very last part when he picks up Woody and realize, and he he kind of has that struggle giving him up. You know, I think yeah. that's well. The part that got know. to me was the when the 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 LGM guys saved him. Yeah, that was that was that was like wow. 